Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent former federal officials and special guests for a dynamic discussion of the most important political and legal topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. 6,000 miles from Trump's mugshot and presidential debates, the war of Russian aggression grinds on. It's been months since Ukraine launched a counteroffensive against Russian forces, and its gains on the ground have been marginal at best. The West remains strong behind Ukraine, but concerns over the continued supply of weaponry are mounting, especially in the United States, where, according to a new CNN poll, the majority of Americans oppose additional funding to support the war. Republican candidates in the fledgling presidential campaign have gone even further, recommending that the U.S. pull the plug on its 18-month steadfast backing of President Volodymyr Zelensky. Yet the military policy and moral imperatives that caused the West to take on a robust role in the war are little changed. And the war has achieved, at a horrendous cost in Ukrainian lives to be sure, tangible geopolitical good, including strengthening NATO and isolating and embarrassing Putin. This week, we set aside our regular digest of Trump legal dramas and domestic politics for a periodic close look at where things stand in the war. And as if to mock our efforts to get a clear view of what's happening, we taped just a few hours after the apparent assassination of Putin rival and head of the Wagner group, Yevgeny Prigozhin. For many of us, the combination of hard-to-decipher military events, multiple national actors, and complicated and fluctuating diplomatic and geopolitical aims make the war seem inscrutable. So it's really fortunate to be able to welcome three of the most knowledgeable and experienced analysts to shed light on the situation in all its complexities. And they are Max Boot, the Jean J. Kirkpatrick Senior Fellow for National Security Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations and a columnist for the Washington Post. In 2018, he was named one of America's great immigrants by the Carnegie Corporation and one of the 50 most influential Jewish Americans by the Forward newspaper. His biography, The Road Not Taken, Edward Lansdale and the American Tragedy in Vietnam, was a New York Times bestseller and a finalist for the 2019 Pulitzer Prize in Biography. Max, so nice to see you again. Thanks for joining. Great to be back. Liana Fix, a first-time guest on Talking Feds, is a fellow for Europe at the Council on Foreign Relations, so a colleague of Max's. Her work focuses on German domestic and foreign policy, the European Union, transatlantic relations, and Europe's relations with Russia and China. She's the author of A New German Power, Germany's Role in European-Russia Policy. Liana, thank you very much for joining our discussion. It's a great pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. And Michael McFall, now an academic, a political commentator, but formerly the United States ambassador to Russia from 2012 to 2014. He is the Ken Olivier and Angela Nomolini Professor in International Studies in the Department of Political Science at Stanford, where he's also the director of the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies as well as a contributing columnist at the Washington Post. He is the author of From Cold War to Hot Peace, an American Ambassador to Putin's Russia. Thank you so much for joining this discussion, Ambassador. Great to be here. Let's start with the state of play on the ground. My sense, could be wrong, is that it's settled into a fairly static situation. The Ukrainian counteroffensive doesn't seem to produce a dramatic breakthrough. Both sides seem stronger on defense than offense, and doesn't seem that much of military note has occurred in 2023. Let me just, to set things up, ask, is that accurate? Is that your view of events on the ground? Yeah, absolutely. I think looking back at the last year, this counteroffensive was certainly framed within the context of the successes that we've seen last year, right? I mean, Ukraine going through basically liberating huge stretches of its territory, 
with not a lot of Russian resistance, with Russian troops collapsing. That's sort of what we had in mind when we looked at Ukraine's counteroffensive this year. And that's why this counteroffensive this year is actually more frustrating to watch and much more frustrating to observe because we don't see these kinds of surprise effects that rally the populations around and, and give Ukraine sort of the moral high ground in pursuing their counteroffensive. And I mean, the reasons are quite obvious and they've been discussed quite often. Russia had a lot of time to prepare its defense if we do see large stretches of Ukrainian territory being mined. So when we see, when we look at the situation right now, I don't think we are yet at a stalemate. I think we are in a situation where Ukraine is making gains, but those gains are small and those gains will continue slowly throughout the next weeks and months. So I don't see that this is sort of the line that will stay here for the next years. If we look back at the wall at St. Five and it still continues, the line will change. This is not the end of the possibilities that Ukraine has, but it is much slower than expected. And I think it's also part of our own expectations management comparing last and this year. And last point, paradoxically, the support for Ukraine, and I'm speaking from Europe here, I've been in Berlin for a couple of weeks The support for Ukraine is not weakening or fading in Europe so far. I know that's always a great concern in Washington, but we actually have an agreement that Ukrainian pilots will be trained on F-16s and will get F-16s from European partners. So the support, if anything, is strengthening, and that calls for, for strategic patience when it comes to the counteroffensive. And we'll talk at length about support, but there's also been some quibbles in the press. I've been surprised where they come from about the military strategy of the counteroffensive, of dividing the forces among three areas rather than massing as one. Max, if I can turn to you, you, after a recent trip to Ukraine, gave a sort of longer range assessment that in your view, Ukraine still can prevail. That's begun to be questioned some, at least back here, but we just have to be patient. So I wanted to ask you, what does prevail mean in that formulation? And what is Ukraine's path to victory as you see it? Well, Ukraine's objective is, is pretty clear, which is to regain all the territory that has been illegally seized by Russia since 2014. So you include Crimea? Absolutely. I mean, I think that is within the realm of possibility, although obviously Crimea will be harder to take than the territory in southern Ukraine or eastern Ukraine, which in, in turn is not that easy to take, as as we're discovering. It's a little bit harder to discern what Putin's war objectives are, because he started off with very maximalist objectives. He wanted to take Kiev. He wanted to snuff out Ukrainian nationhood. And in some sense, the Russian war has already failed, because Ukraine is in many respects, stronger than ever. It has a democratic, popular leader. It has almost universal support for the war effort. Even ethnic Russians in Ukraine are completely behind the Ukrainian war effort. I would say Ukrainian nationalism has never been stronger. So, And of course, NATO also has expanded onto Russia's borders since the war began with Finland and, and Sweden joining the alliance. So in many respects, Putin's war has already failed. And he's kind of at least for the time being, has kind of downsized his objectives to holding on to his gains in eastern and southern Ukraine. Although presumably, if he does manage to hold on to those gains, then he will plot in the future to resume offensive operations. But the Russians, what we saw over the winter was they really don't have much capacity to move any further. They lost staggering numbers of casualties in Bakhmut in eastern Ukraine and produced really only incremental gains, like very little ground was taken. And now the Russians are on the defensive, which is inherently a stronger position in warfare, and the Ukrainians are on, on the counteroffensive. And obviously, as Liana suggested, it has not gone as quickly as many had hoped, but I think it's premature to write off this counteroffensive and say that it's already been a, a failure or a dud. The Ukrainians are actually advancing, and they just took another village in the last day or so in southern Ukraine. And I think, I'm not predicting this by any stretch of the imagination, but I think what military history suggests is that you can have what looks like a stalemate uh, with one side suffering very heavy casualties, and that stalemate can actually break very rapidly in a way that very few people expect. Again, that's not to suggest that's going to happen, but it could happen. There are certainly many examples in history of that very thing happening, for example, towards the end of World War One, And the Ukrainians right now are eschewing direct advances into Russian minefields where they would take very heavy casualties. And 
I'm kind of dismayed to see anonymous U.S. officials criticizing them for their hesitancy to take even heavier casualties than they're already taking because they're already taking more casualties than the U.S. has suffered at any time since the Korean War. So I don't think we're in any position to to criticize the choices, strategic choices they make, but they are managing to continue advancing, and we'll see what happens. I think there's still a couple of months to go on this counteroffensive until roughly mid-October when, when the ground becomes too wet and rainy to really continue with, with offensive operations in all likelihood. So we're only about probably halfway through this offensive in terms of timeline. So we will see what happens. But whatever happens, even the worst case scenario, even if the Ukrainians don't advance anymore, and I think they will advance some more, but even if they don't, they're still in control of more than 80% of their territory. Their state is still functioning. They still have overwhelming support for the Russian war effort. So they can certainly continue as a very viable state and more viable now than they were arguably in the past, despite Putin's attempts to, to snuff out Ukrainian nationhood. I mean, all fair, but they've drawn, Zelensky certainly has drawn a very clear line at a you know complete reversal of the land grab, at least m- more recently. It's my sense, just preparing for this episode, you guys would know much better that what had been a very strong unified support for Ukraine is leaking out a little bit, and there are voices who seem to be thinking that definitive victory by Ukraine isn't plausible. We should think about strategic second-best solutions. Do you feel as if, at least within the states, the efforts are have become more uphill, both within academic communities and government itself, and the resolve to do whatever it takes is ebbing? It's an important question, but it's important that we answer it in a strategic way that I think helps our own national interests. And let me explain that. Of course, if you look at public opinion over the last year and a half, there's more support for the Ukrainians when they're winning on the battlefield because Americans like winners. And when there's stalemate, it fades. And there's more stalemate, you know, less progress this time around than the first counteroffensive. And that's the second thing I want to start, I want to inject into this conversation. There's this weird way that, and, and I talk about it all the time too, that we talk about the counteroffensive. And that's just empirically wrong. There already were counteroffensives last year. And my prediction, tragically, is that there will be additional counteroffensives. And to echo what your other two guests said, I think context and expectations matter a lot, right? It's because of Ukrainian victory in 2022 that both Liana and Max already talked about that we're now, you know, we want more victory, right? That's not enough. You stopped them from taking Kiev. You won the Battle of Kharkiv. You pushed them out of Kherson. Denazification has been a complete failure. Demilitarization, a complete failure. 90% of Ukrainians, no matter what their native tongue, support Zelensky. Oh, and by the way, two new members are joining NATO. That's what happened last year. And I just ticked through all of Putin's objectives that he failed at. But because there was so much victory last year, this seems less so. And I just think it's important to remember that context and also to remember there may be tragically many counteroffensives. President Zelensky was just picking up some new equipment, F-16s. Those are not going to be used in this counteroffensive. Obviously, he's planning for the future. I think we need to remember that. That's the first thing. The second thing I would say is first about the Biden administration and then about the public debate. You both, I think, are referencing, uh, there was a piece in the New York Times, I think it was today or yesterday, where U.S. government officials are questioning the battle tactics of the Ukrainians on the battlefield. And I worked in the government. I know what it's like to talk to the New York Times as a senior government official, SAO. I did that many, many times. But to me, this particular intervention today was really not very strategic at all. I want our commanders and our Pentagon folks and our soldiers to speak to their counterparts in Ukraine. And they may even have some good ideas about fighting these kinds of wars, although I would just point out American soldiers have not fought this kind of war in the lifetimes of anybody at the Pentagon. So we should have a little bit of humility about telling the Ukrainians what to do. But there's no strategic advantage to talking to the New York Times about it. Zero. That does no good to anybody. That undermines the Ukrainians. That emboldens the Russians. And that is a giant mistake. 
You think it was a rogue actor? I don't know. I've seen this play many times and different people say it was rogue or not. But that gets me to the other piece I wanted to say, Harry, about negotiations and the broader debate. It's just, I hope, which should be a very simple, obvious fact. When, let me even put the word if, there is a negotiation that ends this war, that should be a negotiation between the Russians and the Ukrainians, Putin and Zelensky. And anytime outsiders suggest what the deal should be, they are undermining President Zelensky's leverage. I've negotiated with the Russians. I've negotiated with Vladimir Putin. Their negotiating strategy is anything you put on offer now, they take it, they pocket it, and they say, what are you going to offer us next? So the last, the hardest thing, the most difficult part of a negotiation with this particular government has to be the very, very last thing that you talk about. And so when people think they're doing a favor to suggest, you know, ideas for Zelensky, I would just, my view of that is you're undermining his leverage. He may have to make some really horrific choices. I don't know. I hope he doesn't, but he may have to do that. We should do nothing that undermines his leverage when he has to do those kinds of things. And perhaps just to add one point to what has been just said, I think one of the reasons why a slow counteroffensive will not lead or is not an inflection point for sudden policy change, even if there are some New York Times article or some think tanky debates about it, is also that there's this kind of path dependency in politics, right? I mean, the West had this incredible moment of transatlantic unity in this war. So to reverse course would be such a major step that something really dramatic would have to happen. And that especially, again, applies to, to the relationship between the United States and its allies that support Ukraine and so on. I mean, there has been such a strong U.S. leadership on this case. There has been such a strong coalition that has been formed in support for Ukraine that any sudden changes in policy as a reaction to you know, a slower than expected counteroffensive is actually quite unlikely. And perhaps one more point, I mean, the, the administration has also been very clear that what they hope for at some point is to translate military leverage, so successes on the battlefield in the counteroffensive, to translate military leverage into diplomatic leverage and to at some point get to the negotiation table. So that was always the working assumption within the U.S. government The question mark here is, how do we get and when do we get to that point? And that's sort of the magic question that no one really has an answer to. But we are certainly not yet at the point where enough military leverage has been built up to go to the negotiation point or to have any diplomatic leverage from Putin's perspective. It's fine for him just to wait and to wait out the autumn, to wait out ideally US elections in 2024. That's, that's the game that he's in right now. Mike has written some about what a diplomatic surge would and should look like, although it's a little bit different from the timing. I still want to stick with this for a moment and what Max said in particular and the idea of prevailing as dovetailing with Zelensky's notion that all land need be returned and there must be, and some of you have written about this as well, must be real retribution maybe in the form of sanctions or in the form of financial reparations for the aggression. But in saying so, though, you guys have both, everyone's emphasized all that's been achieved so far. NATO is stronger than ever with two new members. Putin's nose certainly has been bloodied. Here's a view that goes the other in the other direction from those premises, which is to say, look, Ukraine won't probably won't join NATO in the foreseeable future, especially with their territorial disputes. We don't really think that Russia is going to invade any NATO country. So we have a kind of uh, stasis that even though it hasn't achieved everywhere you um, that Ukraine wants to go, that extra increment relative to the whole world, China, etc., not a huge point for U.S. interests. And we can, in fact look to something that that is less than a permanent solution in Ukraine's terms. I just want to point out that view because it starts with the same premises of all the achievements of the war. I take it no one here, however, holds that view, right? Everyone sees both for U.S. interests and just broader moral issues, the freezing of things now, however it comes about, would be a unsatisfactory resolution. Is that fair? 
it's not just that it would be an unsatisfactory resolution. It would not be a resolution because this is not like the Korean War. There is not a DMZ that you can freeze in place and have it last for decades. The front lines are highly unstable right now. And one thing that we learned from 2014, remember, there was the Minsk peace process. Where there was an attempt to negotiate with Putin, and he basically got to keep a huge chunk of the Donbass and Crimea, and it did not bring peace. Instead, it led to a Russian invasion of the rest of Ukraine in 2022. And so the Ukrainians are convinced, and I think rightly so, that if they allow Putin to remain in control of 20% of their territory, it's basically just going to give him a chance to retrofit his forces, reinforce his troops, and launch another larger invasion a year or two down the line. That's not a stable status quo. The only way I think you achieve a truly stable status quo is you need Ukraine to return to its internationally recognized 1991 borders. Now, it's possible that if the Russians are beaten back sufficiently, I could imagine a Ukrainian government making some temporary or or short-term concessions on Crimea or something like that, depending on what happens. But I just don't see, and I don't don't think Ukrainians see, the current status quo as being in any way remotely sustainable. And Putin has not given any indication he's given up his larger war aims of taking over Ukraine or that he's suddenly dissuaded from the use of force. So there is no basis for peace here. There is no indication that Russia is even willing to talk about peace. So you know, it's extremely frustrating and foolish for people in the West to say, oh, well, you know, we should just tell the Ukrainians to lump it and to accept what's happened because the Ukrainians have paid a devastatingly high cost and lost lives in war crimes on their territory and, and people raped and people deported and, and huge devastating damage. And they are willing to risk their lives to keep fighting to liberate their territory. And all we have to do is to provide them the weapons. They're not asking for our troops. They're just asking for weapons. And from our standpoint, if you're just looking at this from very narrow U.S. strategic interests, the Ukrainians are right now destroying the Russian army. And so that's not going to be a threat to NATO in the future for probably a decade or more to come because they are inflicting devastating losses, the likes of which the Russians have not seen since World War II. And they're also, I think, sending a very strong warning to China not to try to invade Taiwan, because this is what happens when uh, the West unites behind a a country that is the victim of aggression. So I think we have a lot of strategic reasons as well as moral reasons to keep back in Ukraine. And there is no reason at all to hope that somehow we can force a deal on the Ukrainians and Russians right now and that it will be sustainable in any way, shape or form. And I can understand where the thinking comes from, right? I mean, the idea is, well, don't we have good enough solutions in Ukraine, right? Can't we just take this moment to park the Russia issue again, right? Put it to the sidelines, focus on all these other priorities that US foreign policy has, China, the Indo-Pacific, and so on. But this idea of parking Russia, right, and hoping that it would not return, and and Mike knows this much better, has been a hope which has not worked out in the past. I mean, it has been a strategic approach which has been pursued from Obama to the beginning of the Biden term, I mean, less than one year before the war in July 2021, we still had a big summit at the Geneva summit between Biden and Putin talking about strategic guardrails in the relationship. I mean, the idea of that was how can we have guardrails with Russia and park it sort of calmly and focus on all these other issues that are relevant for us. But that's not the nature of the Russian regime. And I think I would agree very much with what Max said. Russia's regime works through continuous escalation domestically and in foreign policy. And if we try to park the issue, they will come back haunting us sooner or later. I think Bill Burns said it very nicely, you know, Putin is someone who thinks in long-term perspectives. He can wait for a couple of years, that's fine, but then at some point he will come back at a moment when you perhaps don't expect it. And we've made this experience not only once, but twice in other areas, also in Syria. So to repeat the same mistake, to hope that Russia can be put on the sidelines, I think would indeed be a strategic mistake, not only for the United States, but especially for Europe. I mean, it's Europe's security at stake, and there's nothing that suggests that Vladimir Putin or any kind of autocratic nationalistic leadership in Russia would not at some point think that if NATO is weakened, that it might be worth it going further in Europe. Okay, let me pick up just briefly because uh, Max mentioned China and, and you also hear from some 
I was going to say Asia Firsters, but I think it's the official policy of the government now, and maybe since Obama, to focus on that as our biggest threat. Is it clear that it's this is the way to go in terms of deterring them? I gather that just as a matter of materiel, all the things we produce for Ukraine w- amount to something like a five-year period to replicate. Is it potentially the case that China is thinking, oh, now now's a good time to try to invade Taiwan? Or does everyone agree with Max that, that one net upside of what we've done so far is actually deterring China? Well, Harry, I was in Taiwan last summer, and every single person we met uh, from the president on down was cheering for the Ukrainians to win because they understand what Max was talking about. They understand that if Putin prevails in Ukraine and that we look weak, that we look like we were only half in this fight, that's going to raise the probability that if the fight comes to Taiwan, the similar kinds of debates. And remember, the bar is a lot higher in Taiwan. We are pledging to defend them. I mean, it's strategic ambiguity. I got it. We're, we're not actually pledging to defend them. But there's no way that they were they survive without us coming in. And at least that's the impression I got from talking to many senior government officials in Taiwan. Their strategy is we have to hold out until the Americans come. Well, if the Americans look weak and tepid and like, oh, we don't really want to win in Ukraine, we're in an incremental way of thinking about it, not, not a breakthrough way. I think that sends the wrong message to Beijing. And and don't take my word for it. Take the leadership in Taiwan. And therefore, I think this kind of silly, in my view, we get into this argument about material, right? And I'm involved, as we all are, in these debates about like the attackums, right? Do we have enough attackums for American readiness or not? We could have more attackums if we want to build more attackums and, and pay for them. And by the way, we have contracts that we could say, well, in the name of national security, We're not going to send these attackums to, I don't know, Morocco right now. We're going to send them to Ukraine because we think it's international interest and it's in our interest of deterrence in Asia as well. Fair enough. And as a percentage of GDP, it's not like it's been such an outlandish expense for the United States. All right. I thought we would maybe be talking now about this notion of whether we're we're even in a position to force Ukraine to the bargaining table. But I think everyone's views on that are a very clear. I want to add one footnote to that, because I think we, we all are in agreement. But I think there's just it's in the background, but I want to put it in the foreground. We're having this conversations if the Ukrainians don't get a vote. Guess what? Ukrainians get a vote. They fought the Russians without our HIMARS. They fought the Russians without our tanks and without our ships. They fought them with what they had in the Battle of Kiev. And this idea that has become very popular, at least here in the United States debate, I, I don't want to speak, I think it's a, the debate's better in Europe. I want to hear what Liana says about that, or more mature, I would say. Let me let me put it that way. But this idea that, well, we're just going to turn off the spigot and then the Ukrainians are just going to stop fighting, that doesn't at all comport with the conversations I have with Ukrainians. By the way, I talk to Ukrainians every single day. That is not their mindset. And even if Zelensky, if he jumped on our call right on our podcast right now and he said, yeah, you know, actually, I agree with all those people. Well, it just so happens. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, he lives in a democracy. And I think we really I just had dinner with a, a visiting a group from Ukraine on Friday at my house. And I, I just want to make sure we understand some of the things that my colleagues were saying. They have already lost many of their family members, they have lost treasure, they have lost their homes, their kids are living in Spain, their husbands are on the front line. The idea that they're just going to quit because we've decided that's in their interest, I think really, really misunderstands the psyche of the Ukrainian people right now. And I think from a European perspective, it's true that there's also different history of engaging in the Ukraine war, right? I mean, Germany and France have been in the lead when it comes to the Minsk negotiations. Max mentioned that it was not the United States which was in the lead there, right? It was very much a European effort. And this experience of having been in the lead for years with a Minsk process and seeing how Russia has sabotaged the process has been something which has made Europeans and and a lot of diplomats in Berlin who have been engaged in these terrible talks for years where you had no progress whatsoever and Russia would come up with all kinds of arguments, why it cannot do this, why it cannot do this. I think this has been a very important lesson, I mean, both to sort of the French 
system and to the German system. And I think the second point is we always discuss, or if there are discussions about negotiations, about an agreement, about you know forcing Ukraine to the negotiation table, we always discuss as if Ukraine is the biggest problem here, right? It's always how can we incentivize Ukraine? What can we give Ukraine? We can give them NATO membership in return. We can do something. And then we come to the part of the equation which is usually not discussed at all, how can we incentivize Russia? And I think that's actually the much harder part because there are many proposals out there. You mentioned some about we can go for sanctions relief with Russia. We can offer Russia some arms control frameworks in Europe to sort of alleviate the security concerns. Right? But none of these are convincing. None of these will work with a leadership that has not started this war out of security concerns, has not started this war out of concerns for Russia's economic prosperity, but has started this war out of an imperial mindset. And so how do you incentivize someone who pursues this war as his personal historical legacy, as his mission for the history books with an imperial mindset? How do you incentivize this person to come to the negotiation table with offers like sanctions relief or arms control? And I think that if we want to think about negotiations, we really have to think harder and better about how we can bring Russia to the negotiation table. And unfortunately, and I mean, my wisdom is limited there, but I always end up with the conclusion that military pressure is an incentive, right? And that military pressure can be an incentive to bring Russia to the negotiation table and can be a much greater incentive than economic sanctions relief or any kinds of security arms control arrangements in Europe, which have not convinced Russia in the last 10 years to change any of its policy in Europe. It's an exquisitely important point, especially when you layer in Mike's, you know, experience or on the ground knowledge of just what kind of negotiator Putin is. And, you know, he'll take and then say, what else do you have for me? I just want to underscore both what Liana said and Max earlier about Putin's mindset, because Liana is absolutely right. We spend 99 percent of this conversation how we're going to get Zelensky to do something. We spent zero too little time about Putin. And there's a few things I think we need to take as givens for Putin. Number one, he said, remember, he had this big party at the Kremlin and then out on the on the in Red Square to celebrate it, where he on paper annexed four territories of Ukraine. Russia doesn't control those four territories right now. I see no, no sign whatsoever that he will stop fighting until he has exhausted his military to try to take those. That will be a humiliation for him that he annexed them, but actually they're going to be part of Ukraine. That's the first one. And the second, of course, why would he negotiate now before our presidential election? That's irrational. If I were, you know, if I were working for Vladimir Putin, I would say, well, we can hold out till then. Let's see what we can do in terms of a better deal. And then third, and Max, I want you to jump in on this, or Liana too, because I'm not a military historian, but there's an assumption that stalemate is when the only times that war ends. And stalemate under certain conditions is when wars end. That is true. But you know when else they end? When you feel like you're losing, when you're up against, when you're on the run, when you're cutting deals because you know you have no chance of succeeding. Right? Henry Kissinger in Paris in 1972, he was negotiating then to end the Vietnam War, not because it was stalemate, because we thought we were losing, and he was trying to cut his losses. My frustration with the Biden administration from time to time is they don't understand that that might be a condition under which Putin would negotiate. Their reaction is, oh my goodness, if he's losing Crimea, he'll escalate. Right. You hear that. I've heard that literally 100 times. And the end of that is always a nuclear attack in Ukraine. And I don't want to pretend I know that that's not a probability. I think it's a low probability. It's not zero. But the assumption that that's the only response, I think, is incorrect. Sometimes you negotiate when you're losing to cut your losses, not when you're a stalemate or B, that you go to escalation. And I think there are many times in Putin's background when there was a moment of escalation and he backed away, he did not double down. 
it's a good question. Perhaps the only caveat that I was just wondering and thinking about sort of historical examples. I mean, if you think of Germany, uh, First World War, right? I mean, you needed the Kaiser to abdicate, right? And to flee to, to the Netherlands to get those elites that felt this is a lost war. We need to do something to cut their losses, right? And there are other examples of war termination where the main stumbling block for elites agreeing to, we need to cut our losses here, is actually the leader on top. So I wonder whether this, the idea of cutting the losses and, and, and Putin will negotiate is something which will have to take place with or will have to take place without Putin. So perhaps at some point we will reach a point in this war where Russian elites would be willing to say, as sort of the system, some of those would be willing to say we should cut our losses But they ha will have to work around Putin and the Prigozhin episode that, that that has ended, or the Prigozhin story that has ended, shows that working around Putin is a story of life or death in the end. Um, that's that's where it has come down to. So a, a big question mark for me is, is it possible with Putin or only without Putin? And without Putin would be something which would be a turn which is very dramatic if the Russian elite wants to depose Putin Because again, they can't just pretend he's sick and put him into a dacha. That doesn't work in the Russian system as it has uh, sometimes worked in the Soviet system. It will be a decision of life or death. I think there's been a lot of wishful thinking in the West that Putin would disappear somehow or you know, he would be killed or deposed. Something would happen and, and more moderate factions would take over in the Kremlin. And there's no sign of that happening. I think the fact that Prigozhin First off, the most serious challenge to Putin since the war began was mounted by this warlord, this mercenary leader who was a war criminal and, and thought that Russia was not doing enough to prosecute the war. And now that challenge is definitively over because Prigozhin was killed today. Just a very quick interjection. Everyone agree assassinated by Putin, no doubt about it. Yes, surely. And there are a lot of reports that his airplane was shot down by Russian air defenses. So that eliminates the most obvious challenge to Putin. And I think it's You certainly are. Nobody can mourn Evgeny Prigozhin. I mean, he was a horrible person. He was a war criminal. He did horrible things on in the Middle East, Africa, and Ukraine. The one guy who could have been worse than Putin, even. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know worse, but certainly a pretty bad guy. But the problem is, and, and I think Mike can speak to this more definitively than I can. I think the problem is that what it means is that Putin's hammer hold on on power remains as solid as ever. There doesn't seem to be any hope of an internal challenge to him arising. And so I think he will have the leeway to continue this this evil war of aggression that he launched for the foreseeable future as long as Russia has enough artillery ammunition, which doesn't seem to be running out. There will come a time, we think, actually, you use that an if very provocatively, Mike, you know, and there is maybe the possibility of some kind of perma-war Korea type situation. But let's say there will come a time when uh, there's a, a resolution and it's post-war. What do we hope for with respect to Russia? Because one of the downsides, one of the effects of the war, let me put it that way, is Russia has become a pariah state. They're a state sponsor of terrorism. So many things need to be dealt with. But again, there, there are this historical examples. This is what I meant by Germany, where post-war, one of the combatants was kept very much on the outs in a persona, state non grata situation, and it led to consequences going forward. So is the notion, you think, that whenever and however this ends, Russia remains the sort of reduced, really almost outlaw pariah state that they became in the wake of the invasion? Or is that something that somehow has to be, you know, remedied or addressed the way It wasn't, perhaps, after World War I with Germany, if that's a fair analogy. I can try to answer this because it's, it's interesting that this kind of thought has been very prominent with French President Emmanuel Macron in the first year of this war. So he was the one who went public and said, well, we have to prevent a Versailles effect with Russia, right? We need to offer Russia security guarantees and so on. But that's a position that he has moved away from. So he has not repeated these positions or he has not repeated these suggestions. And I think it makes sense why, because... But the comparison that is sort of drawn between Germany, World War I, Germany, World War II, is basically the argument would be that it was sort of a causal relationship 
between the tough terms that Germany got after World War I, which then in the end led to the rise of Nazis of the Third Reich in Germany. And I think this is something which, I mean, history always <laughs> gives you a lot of inspiration, but it also gives you often a trap. And I think following this logic sort of as a causal logic when it comes to Russia, when it comes to other nations, can be very much a trap, especially if you try to reverse the logic and to say, well, great, if anyone would have been softer on Germany after World War I, we could have prevented the rise of Hitler, right? I think that's a deduction that is historically unsound and historically unserious. And so to apply that to Russia today is something which which I would question. And I would also question the possibility of incentivizing Russia towards a positive development by talking about security guarantees and Russia's future place in the world. What I do think is much more likely is, and we have to accept that, that Russia will become, if it is defeated in Ukraine, a bitter and a revanchist state, which will continue to sabotage the West, which will continue to frame the war as a conflict with the West and the United States. But that's something that we have to deal with. It's not necessarily something where we can, you know, with quick and easy solutions, reintegrate Russia into sort of the European or the international community. And that's why even if the war in Ukraine ends with a Ukrainian victory, this does not solve our Russia problem. Our Russia problem is very much likely to stay there throughout the next decades, and it's something that we have to mentally prepare for, for the kind of Russia that, that will emerge from that without being naive about any kind of positive incentives that we can give to a defeated, revanchist and bitter Russia. So they become, I mean, in a sense, you know, within the class of nations like Iran and, and North Korea, I, you know, is that the sort of vision going forward? Well, on the Weimar comparisons, actually, they, we don't want to go back to those analogies. I think that's that that works better when talking about 1991, not this moment, and the rise of neo-Nazis and, you know, Russians abroad. And that, that gave rise to Putin, although it's convoluted because it didn't come from the outside, it came from the inside. But where we're at today, Putin, of course, needs the West as an enemy for the rest of his time in power. Didn't need to be that way. We could talk about mistakes in the past and contingencies, but that's where he is. He's he's locked in. He was locked in even when I was ambassador a decade ago. And that's the argument to his people back home. We're out to get them. We're out to destroy them. That will not change as long as he's in power. What I don't know is do all Russians want to be locked in in this antagonism with us for the next decades? There, I think we should put more question marks. So yes, he's got his core supporters and they all watch his TV, but look at the demographics of who those people are. That's old people, rural people, not educated people, poor people. The opposite of that, young, urban, educated, rich, they don't support Putin. We know that. So who's winning the future there? I'm not so sure everybody's going to be wanting to rally for decades in opposition to the West. The elites around Putin. I used to know all these guys. There's like three that support this war. Yes, they say what they have to. Yes, they're going forward. Yes, German Graf, the head of Bear Bank, is doing what he needs to do. Yes, the head of the central bank, Nabulina, is saving the economy. But are they, when they're sitting in their kitchen table saying, my God, this is great, and, and next we got to go to Moldova, and I can't wait to get to Latvia? No, they're not. This is a complete disaster for them and their children and their grandchildren. And Putin's going to be in power until he is no longer there. I don't, there's no scenario that I think you overthrow him. But the idea that after Putin comes somebody just like him, or even somebody worse, I just want to put a question mark to, I don't know the answer to that. But to assume that that's going to happen, I'm not there. Where are the massive demonstrations in support of this war? Where do you see those big rallies saying, you know, more of this, more of this? It's not happening. Don't overplay that. The bloggers and the guys, the people on TV, I know all those people too. They're like, that's the propaganda machine. I could easily see the end of Putinism. It's like, okay, we've had enough. And that to me would be the point where you go into some kind of arrangement with the government. Until then though, Harry, I, I, my own view is yes. We should treat them like North Korea. We should isolate, contain, reach out to dissidents when we can, help the opposition on the outside. But no, we, we have been doing this way too many times, thinking we're going to have a stable and predictable relationship with Vladimir Putin. And I have the scars to prove it. We should not make that mistake again. 
And now a word from our sponsor, the American Civil Liberties Union. Hello, I'm Sandra Park, a senior attorney with the ACLU Women's Rights Project. At the ACLU, we believe everyone deserves equal access to safe and stable housing. Fair housing is a civil rights issue because it's fundamental to creating a more just society. Where we live is not just an address. It's central to all of life's opportunities, what services, healthcare, jobs, schools, and transportation we can access and where we can build community with our families. The ACLU is working to reduce mass evictions and barriers to housing opportunities that disproportionately impact Black women renters and their families and restore important housing protections to expand equal access to housing opportunities for everyone. To learn more about our efforts to ensure everyone has equal access to safe and stable housing, visit aclu.org. All right, it is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thank you, Harry. In today's spirited debate, we unpeel the truth about Pinot Noirs to see where the grapes shine best, Willamette Valley in Oregon or Burgundy, France. Here in the U.S., we classify our New World wines by the grape. Old World wines, like those in Europe, are classified by the region. In France, Burgundy is not only the region where Pinot Noir wines are from, but it's also the Pinot's ancestral home. No pressure, Oregon. To level set, Pinot Noir is a thin-skinned grape, which makes it difficult to grow, especially in warmer climates. Burgundy happens to have a cooler climate with ample cloud cover, making it the perfect home for Pinots. The cooler temperature allows the wines to ripen longer, giving the grapes extra time to develop more complex flavors like strawberry and dark berries to black tea and earthy minerality. Burgundy produces Pinot Noirs that are full of aromas and nuances. You can find this in a bottle of Edouard Delaunay Bourgogne Rouge and Louis Jadot Bourgogne Rouge, which I highly recommend. If we hop across the pond, we have Pinots from Willamette Valley in Oregon with similar cloud cover, climate, and soil composition as Burgundy. Oregon produces smooth and fruity wines that are slightly earthy and most definitely tasty, giving the region of Burgundy a run for its money. Some of my favorites are the Samuel Robert Pinot Noir and Domaine Druhan Pinot Noir. You can find all of these at Total Wine & More, where we have a huge selection of Pinot Noirs from Oregon to Burgundy, plus wines from every region in between. All that's left now is to reach up to our shelves and pluck one out for yourself. Thanks to our friends at Total Wine and More for today's A Spirited Debate. We have just a few minutes left. Let's have a uh, similar discussion about Ukraine, which has been absolutely the hero, in some ways the improbable hero of this drama, but not without warts themselves. Issues of corruption, issues of proto-autocracy, maybe uh, the potential power of autocrats. We want them to win. I think one of you said, you know, memorably that we can't return to the anarchic Hobbesian world where imperial might makes right. So let's say that somehow we do achieve that. Nevertheless, what do we need to look to from Ukraine for them to be, you know, a full productive partner with Europe and the U.S.? Is there an eventual end game that includes membership in NATO and the like? But just generally speaking, what needs to be done, if anything, to shore up and bring Ukraine more into the Western world that the war effort might suggest it aspires to be? I don't think that NATO membership is a realistic goal in the near future. NATO members just don't want to admit a a member that will invoke Article 5 and could lead them to fight against Russia, or if theoretically, if they don't fight against Russia, could leave Article 5 in tatters and reduce the, the import of its guarantees. I think membership in the European Union, although Liani can probably speak to this more than I can, I think EU membership is perhaps a more realistic prospect and I think is in fact necessary to help Ukraine rebuild as also to take the next steps in their battle against corruption and in favor of further reforms in their government. This is a pattern we saw with 
many Eastern European countries that joined the EU in earlier years. That was the spur for greater reforms in the post-communist area. And I think Ukraine still needs to undertake those reforms. I think the biggest challenge for Ukraine going forward is to rebuild their economy because they've suffered devastating damage. It continues to this day with the Russian blockade of the Black Sea coast. The U.S. and its allies are trying to help Ukraine to get their grain out. I think we should be doing more to free up the Black Sea. They're trying to get out via the Danube and into the Black Sea that way. But Ukraine is going to require hundreds of billions of dollars in reconstruction assistance. And the question is where that money is going to come from. I think there are Russian funds in the West that could be tapped for that purpose. But there are objections to doing that. And, and the U.S. and its allies have not tapped that money to date. I think we should take a harder look at using the frozen Russian funds. But all of this would have to be part of a larger negotiation if it ever occurs to end the war. But again, there's no indication of that anytime soon. And I think the immediate need is to just keep Ukraine going as a as a viable state. And I, one of the good news stories here is I know just from visiting Kiev in, in May, I was just surprised, pleasantly so, to see how bustling the capital actually is and, and how relatively peaceful despite the nightly air raids from the Russians. The air defenses are working very well. The population is almost back to pre-war levels. There are traffic jams, stores and restaurants and bars and cafes are crowded. So obviously, large swaths of eastern and, and southern Ukraine have been devastated and continue to be under Russian occupation or continue to be battle zones. But much of the rest of the country is relatively peaceful and is going on with its business. And I think that that provides some hope for the future. Amazing. Very quick, lawyer's point is I think freezing funds is one thing, but actually alienating them or, or, or giving them over to Ukraine, while it seems totally appropriate, is legally much, much harder. Harry, you're the lawyer. I'm the political scientist. So then change <laughs> right. the damn law. Yeah. <laughs> my view, that's a bad law. Write your congressman. There is no way politically, I'll let Liana speak about European capitals, but in this country, the idea, we only have about eight or 9% of those uh, foreign reserves. And, I, and I've written with our, we have a group on sanctions. We believe we should transfer those. There is no way politically that you're going to tell Americans, we're going to send this billions back to Putin, but my mother in Montana, she needs to pay for Ukrainian reconstruction. That is not going to happen. And the senators in Montana are not going to support that. But, but I want to I build on the bigger, more optimistic thing. We don't know when the war is going to end. We don't know when the settlement, and, and let's let, take that as a given. When it happens, though, I'm incredibly optimistic about the future of Ukraine. Yes, there's corruption. It is an important thing to understand. I, I've been you know, going to Ukraine since the early 90s, written about it, written about corruption, know the oligarchs, know the anti-corruption people. This is a cataclysmic event in the history of Ukraine, there is no going back to the old status quo. No way. There is no way that the Ukrainian people will allow it. Civil society, including many of the great civil society leaders that are now working in the government, yes, they're all tolerating too much power in the presidency and too much concentration of media. But that's a temporary thing that they're doing in the name of winning the war. When the war is over, they're not going to tolerate that. And I don't think President Zelensky will want to do it. And even if he did, he's not going to have the power to do so. I think it's all about reconstruction. And it's to make Ukraine a fantastically successful democracy and capitalist society. And wherever the borders are, that is going to be important, not just for Ukraine, but for Russians, small D Democrats there and Belarusians, to make it succeed, to undermine Putin's argument that Slavic people like a strong hand, that Slavic people are not European. I Putin said that in a meeting I was in with the vice president. He said, you guys, you make this mistake about us. You look at us. And he went like this. He said, you, you think we're like you because we look like you, but we're not like you. That's the argument he's making to Russians. And by the way, when you look at public opinion polls, that argument is now winning. It's reversed from 30 years ago. 30 years ago, Russians thought they're European. Now they don't. Putin's propaganda has won. The best way to destroy that is a successful Ukraine. So the stakes here are much bigger than just Ukraine. I think it's big for including small D Democrats in the entire region. Awesome point. Liana, last word to you. 
And as a European, I obviously love to talk about the European Union. I think it's wonderful that this is the last comment in this podcast, how important the European Union is in this process. And I think Max is completely right. In the US, the debate is always focused on NATO. And I mean, of course, NATO was the important security umbrella for Central and Eastern Europe, which helped them sort of build together with the EU a reform process. But the whole reform process in itself for Poland, for the Baltic states, for, I mean, even Hungary, even though it's not a guarantee, we do see democratic backsliding even within the EU. But the whole reform process was really the European Union and the kinds of efforts that the European Union has, has put into it. So I see the EU membership perspective of Ukraine as a kind of guardrail against all these dangers that there might take place in Ukraine, right? Any kind of autocratic dangers, any kind of increase in corruption. Because this is why civil society also loves in all these countries to work together with the European Union, because they give them authority, they give them legitimacy. And that has been the case in all countries, Moldova, Georgia, and so on, where the European Union has been the important sort of light at the end of the tunnel that you could work towards and that you could hold your government accountable and say, whatever you do, you might try to justify it, but this will not help us to get into the EU. And this is our overall aim because the EU is from a Ukrainian perspective, not only, you know, a bureaucratic Brussels, it's home, right? I mean, it's the home that Ukrainians have fought for since 2014 when they went onto the Maidan to protest not in favor of NATO membership, but to protest that Yanukovych didn't want to sign an association agreement, a trade agreement between the EU and, and the Ukraine. That's, that's how it all started, right? And so, again, just to underline what importance the European Union process has, European leaders are aware of that. The problem for them is they have to reform the EU while getting Ukraine in, because otherwise it will be completely unmanageable if a country as big as Ukraine and with such a big population size will come into the EU. You need to reform decision-making, you need to form financial allocations. It's a huge project. But that's the new project of the European Union for the next decade. And that's the big goal for Ukraine. So just making the case, just because of Brexit and everything that we've seen in the past, the EU has actually been more relevant and become more relevant to the United States than it has ever been, especially in the region. What a great and informative discussion this has been. You know, in Talking Feds, we're often almost always talking about Trump. But as long as this war is going on, it's so important and historic that every few months we hope to revisit. And hopefully all of you can come back. But thanks so much for today's talk. I think it's been invaluable for Talking Feds listeners. Max, Mike, Leona, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Thank you, Harry. Great conversation. We are sadly out of time. Thank you very much to Liana, Max, and Mike. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can also now subscribe to us on YouTube, where we are posting full episodes, talking books, and bonus video content. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod, and you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post bonus discussions with national experts about special topics exclusively for supporters. This past week, we posted a conversation with Maya Von Rosum, the founder of Green Amendments for the Generations, about a groundbreaking recent lawsuit in Montana in which the state court held that a Montana constitutional Green Amendment required the state to consider the effect on climate change of proposed fossil fuel projects. Talking Feds is a completely independent production, so if you like the work we do and are inclined to support the show, joining our Patreon is the best way to do it. Submit your questions to questions at TalkingFeds.com, whether they're for Talking Five or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Mal Meliez, associate producer Catherine Devine, sound engineering by Matt McArdle. Our research producer is Zeke Reed, 
Rosie Don Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers. Production assistance by Meredith McCabe, Akshaj Turbailu, Emma Maynard, and Kalena Tano. Special thanks to Alex Hu for his critical help with this episode. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Fez is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later.